My guest today is the founder of Dry Farm Wines, Todd White. Dry Farm Wines is one of my absolute favorite brands with a very unique and interesting company culture, and I've been so looking forward to this interview and to introducing you to Todd. Todd is a self-described biohacker who practices daily meditation, Wim Hof breathing, a ketogenic diet, and daily 22-hour intermittent fast. Dry Farm Wines has seen an absolutely remarkable growth, and for a good reason. It is sugar-free, there's no additives, it tastes alive, and ever since I switched to Dry Farm Wines, I have not experienced a headache that I used to experience almost every time when I drank wine. We get into the reasons why Dry Farm Wines is such a healthier option when it comes to wine, if you are someone who appreciates a glass with your dinner. And one of them that is fascinating is healthy and biodiverse soils and the fact that they're biodynamic and grown with no irrigation. Todd explains that a lot better than I do. I know that as a consumer and a huge fan of the brand, it really is just a game changer. And if you do love wine, their subscription is so good. There's been only one time when I didn't like a bottle. And thanks to their happiness promise, I got it replaced right away with something that I loved. In this episode, we talk about meditation, about creating a conscious company culture, about morning rituals, manifestation, about optimal performance at work, and trusting challenges and reroutes on your path. Enjoy this conversation with Todd White. And if you're inspired to try Dry Farm Wines, you can get an extra bottle for one penny, that's one cent, when you go to dryfarmwines.com slash Xenia, K-S-E-N-I-A. This podcast was made on Zencaster. I am so excited to share that one of my favorite products of all time is now sponsoring the show. If you're looking to support your adrenal health and keep your hormones in balance, you've got to know about Rasa. Rasa is an adaptogenic coffee alternative with an incredible blend of herbs, adaptogens, and mushrooms. It gives you energy without the jitters, and it tastes really good. There are 10 Rasa flavors and functions, and each blend is formulated to support your nervous system, help you stress less, give you balanced energy through the day, and get better sleep. Adaptogens are most effective when consumed regularly and consistently, which means you can get your daily dose of adaptogens while enjoying a beautiful morning or evening ritual. I am all about it. Here's the cool thing about Rasa. You can replace some of your coffee intake with it, or even mix it 50-50 with coffee if you wish. I recently started feeling anxious after drinking coffee, and as soon as I switched my coffee for Rasa a few days a week, my calm energy was back. My favorite Rasa flavors are spicy rose cacao, of course, which connects you to your body and sensuality, and Super Happy Sunshine, their joy blend that supports an uplifted mood. All Rasa blends are formulated in-house by clinical herbalists, and the ingredients are organic, sustainably sourced, and fair trade or direct trade. Rasa is fanatical about responsible sourcing, which is one of the reasons I recently became an investor into the company. There's a special offer to my listeners right now. To get started, you get 20% off your first purchase at wearerasa.com with code Xenia20. That's W-E-A-R-E. 
rasa.com and the code is KSENIA20. You can find that link in the show notes. All right, Todd, you were asking me just now where I am and I'm in my parents' log cabin outside of Moscow and I was trying not to give away too much because there's some interesting details to share that I would love my listeners to be in on. And one of them is that when I was packing to come visit my family in Russia, I packed one of my favorite bottles of dry farm wines. I had like the whole packaging planned out. I researched how to pack wine bottles in a suitcase and it worked out. And it was my parents and my whole family's actually first introduction to natural wine. And everybody was blown away the same way that I'm blown away every time I open a new bottle of dry farm wine. So thank you. Nice. Nice. Thank you. And I would love to get a little bit into wine naturally, biodynamically. And mostly I would love to hold the space to talk about consciousness and entrepreneurship and meditation and the different practices that you employ behind running the company. Because I was introduced to Dry Farm Wines, I think it was at a Revitalize Summit years ago. And then I came across Ben Greenfield's podcast with you. And that episode was one of the most life-changing episodes I've ever listened to. The way you so generously share about your journey and the practices, which we'll get into some of that in our conversation as well. And particularly the book that you mentioned, The Master Key System, which has become one of my own personal favorite rituals to do in the morning and in the evening, were just so impactful. And that's when I knew that there's just something that you are onto that I am here to amplify so that as many people as possible can feel and see and be inspired and moved by this totally different approach to entrepreneurship, which is rooted more in peace than it is in profit first and is rooted in love, you know? And so I am so excited to chat about all of that. And why don't we start right there? How did you start Dry Farm Wines? And how did your serial entrepreneurial journey lead to wine? Why is that the company that you are involved in today? Well, that's a lot of questions there and complicated issues. But to boil it down, let's start with, I manifested this business months before I knew what it would be. So I drafted a set of 18 business rules based on all of my life experiences. I've been self-employed since I was 17. Most of that time has been, well, until Dry Farm Wines, all of that time and practices up till then had largely revolved around striving as a concept for entrepreneurship. That's how most people succeed is by striving. And that's clawing and chewing and pulling and you know, just striving. It's, a, it's an intentional act of thrusting oneself forward. And with Dry Farm Wines and meditation and manifestation, then I took a different approach, what we call thriving, which is, see, when we strive and, and we're chewing and pulling, we're creating resistance. And resistance blocks abundance. Now, most people, in fact, and I have been successful with the method of striving several times. It's just not very pleasant. And it doesn't embody or engender 
a whole lot of endearing feelings around kinship and love, right? Because we're just trying to get ahead. And our focus is like when you talk to most startup folks today, they before they've even taken in a dollar of revenue, they're already dis, uh, discussing how to exit, right? And so this, you know, this kind of perpetual movement forward towards this object of money is not peaceful and creates resistance, therefore making the whole journey a lot more difficult. My business before this was actually a terrific failure. It's the really only monumental failure of my adult business life. As a result of that, it was very soul-shattering for me. And from that, I discovered meditation and the peace that meditation brings. And so then when I was thinking about long before Dry Farm Wines existed, long before Dry Farm Wines as an idea even existed, and my relationship with natural wine and my relationship with the wines that we drink and sell never started as a business. It started as me trying to find a healthier, better way to drink. So it became a business much later. But even before that, even before the pursuit of a more natural, better way of drinking, even before the pursuit of dry farm wines as a business, I had drafted these 18 business rules that were typically one sentence rules that were the culmination of everything that I had learned in conjunction with meditation. And so when Dry Farm Wines became a business, it actually met all of these 18 rules. You know, I give you three of them as an example. Uh, one is that the business must be transformational, not just transactional. Number two, I will never accept accounts receivables again. Accounts receivables, when you sell somebody something, you extend credit to them and they pay you later. Because once you extend accounts receivable, you get in the collections business. And the problem with being in the collections business is that one day I'm swooning you and I'm woeing you and trying to get you to feel loved as a customer. And the next day I'm breaking your back trying to get you to pay me. Right. And so it's an inconsistent value system. So another was that I wanted to have a subscription business that had reoccurring revenue. So I'm a wine club. But anyway, so I had these 18 rules, and then I manifested creating something that met these rules, and from that became Dry Farm Wine some six months later. But this grand failure that I had that went from hero to kind of zero, I had been very successful any number of times with companies throughout my career. And then I had this kind of colossal failure, which was embarrassing and kind of soul-shattering and kind of took my world and turn it upside down as I knew it was the greatest gift that I could have gotten because it then caused me to look at more foundational issues and discovering meditation during that process then led to, you know, everything that happened afterwards. You know, one of the topics that I've heard you speak about is pattern interrupt. And when it comes to pattern interrupt, the way I think about it, it's, it's either internal and we choose it or life interrupts our patterns because there was no other way to awaken us and redirect our path. And the way you speak now of that soul-shattering moment and the life and the business redirect, now you have this perspective and the capacity to see it as divine intervention, if you will. But at the time, what were some of the 
tools you were relying on and mindsets that really helped you get through it and take action towards building something instead of dreading something? That's a complicated question again, because the problem with this pattern interrupt like this, this, uh, first of all, we all create it. We invite it. It means the, it's the law of attraction, right? So our behavior creates this monumental interrupt that, so, you know, we manifest that too. That we're all manifesting all the time. The question is, are we manifesting with intention or are we manifesting with an outcome that is reflective of peaceful values or most people are manifesting when they are expressing fear or regret, anxiety. These are also manifestations, right? And so this kind of manifestations of fear and regret, which is, you know, anxiety of the future, regrets of the past. Most people suffer from anxiety of the future, not from regrets of the past, because most people forget those. But most of us are suffering from those two emotions. So as a result, that's what we're manifesting is this anxiety, right? As opposed to manifesting something of intentionality. This is really difficult because as you're going through it, there's this sense of hopelessness, right? I recently was coaching a, a longtime friend who was going through a somewhat kind of midlife crisis and his whole world was coming down around him. So he thinks because most all of this is just, it's just a product of, of the egoic mind. And, you know, I realize there's, there's just not much that you can do to really help someone on the other side of this. It's just a process of adulting that one must go through in order to gain the resilience and hopefully come out on the other side of it. I mean, you can give them some pointers that for me, that the most important therapy was, was meditation. It was during this time that I discovered meditation. I had tried to meditate before because it was kind of trendy, but didn't work for me. And people say, you know, about meditation, people say, well, I don't have time to meditate. And I was like, well, if you don't have time to meditate, then you're the one who needs meditation the most. Right. Or people say, I can't stop thinking. Well, that's the reason we call it a practice. You don't stop thinking ever unless you're the enlightened one. You go through periods of silence and you hope that those periods of silence increase and then replicate through practice. We can't manifest with intention until we can silence the egoic mind. Right. Until we can silence the anxieties of the future which are creating resistance. They're just noise. They're like a confused mind, right? Anxiety is like confusion. And it serves no one. For most of the things that we worry about, they never happen, ever, right? Or even anywhere close to what we imagine. It's all we dream this up. We manufacture this in our mind. It's like a film that's on repeat. It just goes over and over and over again. Well, while this confusion for the mind is going on and you can't silence the mind, you also can't manifest with intention because there's no space there. You have to have space in order to receive the abundance that is your birthright due, right? And so this is the reason that meditation is so important. And you can tell people who are suffering, you know, to sit down and find silence. You can coach them, but most of them still won't do it. Right. And so 
for me, meditation was the tool. Of course, I've been a lifelong fitness enthusiast. Working out do for two reasons, sanity and vanity, right? I like looking good, right? But more importantly, and I talk a lot about this with my athletic friends, more importantly, working out is about mental health more than your body. And so, you know, I continued to work out. I continued to, I had the privilege and the, that I could heal at home. I lived in a very therapeutic place. I lived on the edge of a thousand acres of vineyard on a 10 acre kind of beautiful wooded piece of property. And so I was very lucky and privileged that I could heal at home and, and, and I didn't work for about six months. You know, so during that period, I was spending a lot of time in nature and a lot of time meditating twice a day and sort of starting my healing journey. But most people, even if they're suffering in this way and they ask for coaching or direction, they s- still won't take it. And I'm not sure. It's like I have a lot of young people, particularly, who ask me for business advice because, you know, I've been very successful. But, you know, advice is generally worth what you're paid for it, right? And because most people just don't take your advice. They have to learn the painful way, you know, and I wish I had had mentorship, but I don't know that it would have been effective, you know, because when you're young, you know, as I like to say, youth is wasted on the young, right? So it's like when you're young, you just, you just think that you're going to have a better, different way that nobody saw before you, right? So, I don't know that you can help people until they're really at that point where they want to help themselves. Same thing for addiction, right? I mean, a person has to reach rock bottom. There's this phrase in the addiction world that's never robbed someone of their chance to to hit the bottom, right? So when we're constantly bailing people out and constantly sort of, you know, keeping them from just just about the brink of disaster, They're just not getting where they need to go in order to make a fundamental life shift, right? And for me, this was a fundamental moment where I was at the bottom. Like, I didn't know if I would make it, right? Meditation saved my life. So I didn't know if I would make it. And I think when you get there, that becomes altering enough that, you know, if you have any desire to get up and go again, you know, the... There's so many there's so many quotes around the world that are just so common like this too will pass everything passes good times bad times medium times low times they all pass right the only thing is constant life is change now we can affect that change we can manifest our future we can bring into attraction using the law of attraction and the universal laws, we can draw outcomes into us. We can minimize, maybe not eliminate, but we can minimize the downside significantly by how we respond to it. So let me give you one simple example. Social media, right? Somebody attacks you on social media. So you just accept that with peace and love and goodwill and wish them, and wish them repair. Do not engage in it, right? How you respond to a circumstance is going to determine its outcome, right? And Viktor Frankl, who spent many years in concentration camp, 
wrote one of the most published books of all time called Man's Search for Meaning, said that between the stimulus and our response to it is our power and freedom, right? And so that space between when something happens to us and comes to us and how we're going to respond to it, that's our power and freedom. And so what we want to do is extend that space. You know, we get a aggravating email, we get something that triggers us emotionally from some childhood trauma, we want to just step back for a moment and think about how to respond to that peacefully because peaceful response is going to engender more peace or just to ignore it, which is also peaceful. I'm so excited to share with you that my number one podcasting tool since day one of this podcast, Zencaster, is sponsoring this episode. I remember when I first started my podcast, it seemed like solving a tech puzzle, but I've been using Zencaster since day one, and honestly, it's made it so easy. It provides crystal clear sound and gorgeous HD video. What I love about it is that it records separate audio and video tracks for me and my guests, so the editing process is super customized. Plus, they offer secured cloud backups, and I've never lost a single episode. It's super easy to use, there's nothing to download, and my guests just have to click on the link and we start recording. I recently got to try their automatic post-production and it's so good. I'm a huge fan of Zencaster. If you're a podcaster or you're thinking about starting a podcast, Zencaster has a special deal for my listeners. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and enter promo code K-S-E-N-I-A, all capitals, my name, to get 30% off your first three months with Pro Account. It includes unlimited audio and video recordings, hosting up to four guests at once, audio and video mixing, and unlimited English transcriptions. You get a 14-day trial and can always downgrade to the free account if you choose to. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com forward slash pricing, promo code Xenia, all caps, or click the link in the show notes to get that 30% off. It's time to share your story. You speak a lot about manifesting, and I would love to dig a little bit into what that means to you. You speak about law of attraction and the universal laws. There's different approaches to this topic. I would love to know how it plays a role in your own life, how you practice it, and how you also bring it into business. Well, my practice is quite simple. I meditate early in the morning, generally a half hour or so after I get up, sometimes sooner, sometimes a little bit later. And I spend 30 minutes in silent meditation. And following that, I have a gratitude practice and I have a visualization practice. So I am visualizing and seeing the goals or objectives come to me, there are typically only two or three that I'll focus on on any given day. And sometimes that two or three things that I'm focused on visualizing and drawing to me may go on for weeks or months. A couple of years ago, one was my relationship with Oprah. And that resulted in some two years later after I visualized my relationship with Oprah getting a full-page feature in Oprah Magazine. And so, you know, these goals that I'm visualizing are generally sort of life achievement 
goals. So that's my visualization practice. From there, I go into what I call my life plan or journaling. So every day I have a, I have a journal where it is at the moment. It's, it's in my backpack because I took it with me earlier on an errand. But it's a very sacred journal that every day I go in and I date it and I note a couple of things of material sort of importance of that day. Like, you know, I had this great dinner with so-and-so last night or I, my friend, you know, Mark is arriving today from California. Just a, just a note of something that's interesting about the day. And then I start journaling on the values on my manifestations, like whether it be business goals or life goals or my relationship with stoic values or businesses or opportunities to create that I'm visualizing for the future. So I write about them. I could be focused on things like temperance or fortitude or sixth decade plan as an example. Like I'm sick, I'll be 61 next week. Right. And so I'm working on what I call the sixth decade plan, which is I believe that the next 10 years will be very substantial in setting me up for the following 20 in terms of my health and wellness. So I have a very comprehensive plan around fasting and around diet and around power, flexibility, shape and balance. The things that, you know, I have a plan in place for the sixth decade of aging. I'll write about that. So I'll will manifest fasting. So th these are things that I write about that typically contains a page. It takes 30 or 40 minutes. And then from there, I go to the gym. But that's how I think about it. I start every day writing down. And oftentimes, there'll be the same things written day after day after day after day. You know, with my business, I have some goals. And those goals have been, I have three primary goals there. I won't bother to share them with you. But they're very long range, and I've been writing about them for maybe two years every day, right? So just to keep that message, and when we write something, there's, it's different than typing. I don't have the same relationship with how it feels and the power of the words when typing as I do when writing, right? So that is my daily practice and how I think about, you know, if I'm having a challenge with something, then I'll will write about that. I don't write about the challenge. I write about the solution, right? I don't never focus on the challenge. I only focus on the solution because the egoic mind wants to drag you down into the problem and you need to pull yourself out into the solution, right? Because there's this anchor, this weight that will constantly pull you back to the problem. And so I, which is one of the reasons that, by the way, and I had this conversation with this young man I was coaching recently through this trauma that he imagined on himself. And this is one of the problems in my disagreement with, you know, contemporary Western therapy. And he talked about this problem as well. I just thought about this. He's like, he's going to this therapist. I mean, he was suicidal. He was going to this therapist, but the therapist, they want to just dig up the problem and talk about the problem over and over and over again. I don't think that's useful. I think that just grounds us and anchors us into the problem. I think we have to step up. We're all going to get bruised and beat up. We're all going to fall down. The question is, do we get up and keep going? Do we have the courage and fortitude to put one foot in front of the next? In light of the embarrassment, 
that we internalize and feel, uh, perceive about now what people think of us, you know, because we've just fucked something up, right? And so, you know, to get back out there and go back at it again, you know, is difficult. And I don't think you make much progress in that focusing on the problem. You just focus on the solution. The solution is that that's yesterday's news, right? That's over. That chapter has been closed. Now we open up a new chapter and focus on that sort of solution. Yeah, I think personally, I've never had Western therapy. I know it's super helpful for some people. What I find is we are such powerful beings and we have the choice to enter a new timeline, to enter a new way of being in each and every moment. And if we can surround ourselves with tools and people and reminders of our own inner force that we can do that, there is nothing more powerful because otherwise we just keep relying on external tools and resources. And one thing I wanted to clarify with you, Todd, is when you talk about journaling, do you journal as if it's already happened? Do you journal as if it's happening now? Does the tense play a role in how you journal? It's kind of a combination of both, but more forward-leaning, so as if it has happened or is happening now. Not that it will happen, but that it is happening. You know, the meditation thing gets back to this concept of when we're at peace and without conflict, and conflict can be drama, anxiety, conflict comes in many forms. When we're at peace, then the channel opens up to receive the abundance. We talk about this constantly. Like any business, we have, you know, material developments that at times cannot always be considered to be, you know, entirely positive or fun, right? But I have many of them, but they come down once or twice a year, something silly, you know, and we just accept it with the understanding that it will always lead us to a better and higher place. This challenge, which the obstacle is the way, you know, with peace, we accept the obstacle as difficult and entertaining and, and welcoming in that we know that it always, always leads to a higher and better place. Because of that, we become innovative that this is before we can even see how it benefits us. That innovation benefits us in ways that we didn't even see coming, but we know that it's going to happen, right? So anytime there's a material kind of disruption, a pattern disrupt in our business life, we just say, okay, all right, we got this. We're going to be a lot better off for this on the other side of it. There are going to be innovations that are going to come from this. that are going to benefit us in ways that we can't even see right now, even though this seems difficult. And so just reminding ourselves that, this obstacle is presenting itself with opportunities to innovate and opportunities to be better later that we can't even see today. Yes. And when it comes to meditation, I've heard you reference a 30,000% company growth, and I've heard you attribute it to meditation. And I know that you have some rituals that the whole company does, every single employee I'd love you to speak more to when and how you decided to bring meditation to your company and how it practically works. 
The Great Experiment continues. I'll tell you the history of it, but it's changed a lot. COVID brought very considerable change on our culture and considerable change on our business. And this is like one of these things that, you know, happens and and how we respond to it. So let me start back from the beginning, sort of, because we call our culture a great experiment because I've never done this before and I don't know anybody else who's done it in the way that we're doing it. And so we created at the time and the meditation as practice started from the very beginning from like two or three people until now there's a, you know, 120 or 30 or whatever. And so this started in the beginning, we would gather every day. So we, I wanted to create a cultural utopia. And this is an important word, this utopia, because we're now on to, remember, I, I mentioned the only thing constant in chain, the only thing constant in life is change, right? And how we adapt to it, you know, like Darwin said, you know, that it wasn't the strongest or the smartest of species who adapt, who, who survived. The species who survive the most in the, in, in the challenge of nature, including humans, are the, the species that were the most adaptable. But I'm going to come back to this utopia thing in a moment because now we're adapting to what we call the new utopia. But the old utopia in our world, pre-COVID, was that we would meet at 10 a.m. and we would meditate and have gratitude and journaling practices together for about an hour from 10 to 11 now, there was no email or work happening before 10 a.m. And the reason for that is because I wanted to protect my morning for my own personal rituals, which included fitness as well as meditation and quiet. I find the morning is the most peaceful time of the day. It's the only time of the day I can control, right? After that, I'm not, I'm, I'm not entirely in control of my day. And so, you know, I didn't want people to be rushed coming to all my other businesses, we would start at 8 or 8.30, right? So I didn't want people rushing their morning to come to work and already beginning their day with stress. So, and I work with people who don't get up at 9.30 to come to work at 10. These are people who are getting up at 5 or 6 and coming to work at 10. Some of them have family time. Some of them have partners. Some of them just have morning rituals that include their own meditation practices and fitness and so on. So we would meet from 10 to 11. And then we would start creating, which is what we call work, we would start creating sometime between 11 and 11.30 in the morning. And we would create until, you know, 5 or 6 in the afternoon. So we would create basically about six hours a day. And then after that, we had no, we have a number of other rules like, there, it's super rare. I'm going to say once or twice a month, there's an email that goes out to all. Don't copy all. Don't respond to all. You know, stop the email madness. We don't send emails after six at night or before 10 in the morning, right? I don't want to see them. I don't want that traffic. I don't want to interrupt my peace. I don't want people going home working at night, right? And so I want them to be at peace so that the time when they are creating, for five or six hours a day, right? Then they're at optimal performance. Now, if you can't figure out how to achieve your goals in six hours a day, I think you need to rethink the method by which you're going to achieve your goals. 
right? We just don't need to work any more than that. It's just not necessary. The world's not that competitive. I mean, we can get ahead and achieve, have material achievements working six hours a day, five days a week. You know, I I don't personally find it, maybe I'm not ambitious enough. I, I don't need to go to Mars, right? I don't need to, there are a lot of things I don't need to do. So we started that practice and that started with two or three people and then it would be 20 people and then it was like 30 people and then there were like 40 people in this meditation room in my office. In that room, the only thing, well, usually the only thing that happened was meditation. It was the biggest room in the office building, right? And it was very woo-woo. It had this shag kind of like meditation cushions and all in a big circle and it was a huge room. Now, later on, because we continued to grow and we didn't have enough office space, then people started holding meetings in there as well later in the day and because it was just kind of a hippie place to hang out and talk. And, you know, and so and we had video in there and a big screen TV so that we could pull all of our remote people into our meditation session and so on. And so, forth. so then COVID happened. So we continued to replicate this practice over Zoom. So every morning we would meditate together. And uh, we started having virtual dinner parties and virtual wine tastings. I mean, we just like we were all locked down in our house, but we were trying to replicate the former environment that we had. And over time, we found that didn't work. It wasn't the same as being together. It was actually, you know, people were not attending as often and, you know, and it was it just wasn't working. So we started a bunch of experiments to try and figure out the new reality. And the other remarkable discovery happened was actually in 2020, which most of 2020 was a lockdown. And I mean, for like solid six, eight months, we didn't, didn't congregate at all. What we discovered in 2020 is that much to our surprise is that we were more productive and put out more work product than ever in the history of the company. So people working remotely. Now there were some things about it that we didn't like, but from work product and productivity point of view, we had never imagined doing much remote work. We had some customer service people who work remote, but we got a lot done. And so we were like, this took on a whole new understanding of how we could have distributed work and distributed association. So now we're in the new utopia. And the new utopia is that nobody wants to go back to the old utopia. Right? We all want more freedom. We all want to be where we want to be, when we want to be. We already had unlimited paid time off, so people were already moving around a lot anyway. And because our business is spread out all over the world, we travel a lot anyway. I'm talking about before COVID. So now, you know, we've, now we, have, we are creating what we call the new utopia. Now, we're still meditating together, but that meditation practice is now down to twice a week. Right, because people don't want to get on Zoom and meditate. It just it's just not the same. They still have their individual meditation practices, but it just wasn't working. So so now we've created what we call the new utopia. So certain teams have to be together in the same city. So we've so for example, our media team, they decided they want to live in Los Angeles. I've decided I'm gonna live in Miami, and so the executive team and finance is all moving to Miami to be with me. And then our distribution and logistics are moving to Dallas, Texas to put 
us in the central part of the country, we can get people ship ship wine faster. Our wine team is going to remain in Northern California. So we created these hubs where people can congregate and certain teams need to be together just as a matter of the way they work. And so this is our new utopia. We created a, a flex day on Friday. It's no scheduled meetings. You can report to work or not. You can be involved or not. We don't care. You can take Friday off. You can do whatever you want to do. So we got Flex Fridays. Then we've got no meeting Mondays. So no meeting scheduled on Monday, but everybody is expected to be logged on and engaged. Right. And so we've started creating this kind of you can be anywhere you want to be. And we're going to manage this flexibility with some rules. But among those is you don't have to come in anywhere unless you're a part of these integrated teams that need to be together, like creative is an example. Media, they need to, they got photo shoots. They need to be able to produce work product together. The wine team has to taste wines together. The executives and financial team need to be together. So we're trying to create, we're not trying, we are creating this new utopia of where you can have all the freedom that you want as long as you're participating and participating in the things that do. And then, Four times a year, we're bringing the whole company into one location, and that location changes. So everybody comes in for a week together, right? And then monthly, the executive committee, the people who the department leads, they meet somewhere for two days every month. And so we're continuing to spend time together, but just in a very, very different way. So now that there isn't a common hippie room with a rug, what do the rituals look like that you do within the integrated teams? Are they different for each team based on what works for them? Or is it also a company-wide suggested protocol? It's a company-wide meditation and lessons and gratitude and still encouraging people to have you know, their own meditation practices, right? And so still coaching and mentoring them through to a life of greater peace and less resistance. Resistance created, as we've talked about, by fear, by anxiety, by the egoic mind, by imagining terrible things that are never, ever going to happen. I mean, all the time and energy that's wasted on the things that never happen to you. That's how most people spend their life. Yeah, and it sounds like what doing meditation together with people that you create with does is really allows us to see other beings as humans first before co-workers, before someone who completes a task with us. And there's something so powerful when we have that relationship. Are there any stories you have or things that you've noticed once you hire someone and you notice them really get into the groove and start meditating and be connected to consciousness every day? The better utopia for us that produced the highest outcome was meeting and meditating together every day. Very powerful. Very powerful to lead young people into the problem with the distributed workforce. And, and this is every company is grappling with this. Is the problem is that, see, the best mentoring, the best coaching, the best teaching is by observing others. And you can't observe others when you're traveling or you're disconnected or you're on Zoom. You can't observe people in the same way. You can't absorb the energy in the same way. It's a big issue. 
And I would tell you that the old way was the better way overall. But the fact is, the old way is not the way anymore, right? And so those who adapt the best will be the strongest at surviving and being able to move forward. So I think we lost something very special when we, but the fact of the matter is, we couldn't ignore the new reality. There is no old normal again. We're just not going back to that. And so we needed to adapt. And we will lose significant opportunity to lead people to a higher place. It just won't be the same, but it will be the new utopia that is desired and that we believe will take us to the next place. Because simply people just didn't want to do that anymore, right? And so it's like, okay, actually, I don't want to do it either. Although I know there's going to be significant loss of opportunity by not doing it, I just don't want to do that anymore. And one of the reasons that we, you know, our hiring practice takes about two months, our interview process. One of the reasons that, you know, we can do this is because we hire super smart people who are super dedicated who subscribe to a belief system. They're doers. They're people who like to create. They're people who like to contribute, right? And so you don't have to manage them from the top down. You just give them opportunity and then get out of their way, and they'll create greatness, right? Because that's just who they are. At most companies, 20% of the people create 80% of the results. And so at our company... 80% of the people are creating results. And the other 20% are probably trying to figure out how, right? (laughs) So it's a mindset of people that we hire. So this kind of distributed utopia will work for us. But it's an experiment. We 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 don't know how we're right in the beginning of it. I mean, this is all very new for us. We're we don't know how this is going to work out. I mean, we will adapt and change. And look, we tell our people, we tell our family, our team, look, we're going to create an experiment here and we don't, some of it's not going to work. And we're going to have to come back to you and say, you know what, this isn't working, so we have to change this. So you're going to have to be patient with us and forgiving if we have to change some things that you now like because they're not working for the group as a collective. Yeah. So why Miami? Well, three reasons. On the cover of the Financial Times published in London today, the cover story is, or one of the cover stories is how Miami became the most powerful city in the United States. And it's driven by two things. Why that happened is driven by two things. There's no state income tax here. And the weather between October and May is about as blissful as it gets. And so with an extremely business-friendly environment. So you take the weather combined with the, the taxes. So what's happened is Miami's become this magnet that's attracted Californians and New Yorkers, both of them who pay in the low double digits in state income tax. So you already had this dynamically charged environment here that is charged around weather and, and, and energy. And then you combine you put a whole bunch of progressive smart people here who are fleeing taxes because during covid everybody learned that we don't have to 
work in an office together in order to succeed, right? So distributed work became a, re a reality years in advance of when it would have happened naturally or organically. And so some Manhattan New Yorkers are paying, you know, something around 15% in state and city taxes. In California, the top tax rate for me is 13.3%. So not to mention that also applies to capital gains. So every time you sell an asset or you, you know, cash out on something, you pay 13.3% of that to the state as well. There are five state free income tax or five states that have no state income tax. Miami or Southern Florida happens to be the most desirable from a weather point of view. So as a result, New Yorkers and Californians in particular have moved here in just thousands and thousands and thousands of them. Very smart, very often very rich, and it has become a melting pot of ideas overnight where real estate, Miami's now the fastest growing home price market in the country. Real estate had a near 50% over the last two years increase in valuations. So anyway, it, now a lot of technology people have moved here from Silicon Valley, from, from San Francisco. San Francisco still has not recovered from COVID. San Francisco's Mayor just placed the city in the state of emergency three weeks ago over crime and looting. It's just New York bounced back pretty quickly, but San Francisco and, and the Bay Area have, have not returned to pre-COVID civility, right? LA's also been a bit of a mess, but it's this tax thing has really been the driver for, for people escaping that, that kind of financial environment and a repressive business environment in both cities as well. So New York, very difficult place to do business. California, very difficult place to do business. So the two alternatives that have been Austin, Texas, and Miami. I was just going to mention Austin. I didn't want to move to Texas. Austin's a nice place, but, you know, right now there's a snowstorm in, in, in Texas, right? The place is it's cold in the winter. It's hot in the summer. Yeah, I, I don't get the weather there. So, you know, here... The weather's stupendous between October and May, and then May you just leave and you travel and you do your thing over the summer and then you come back in the fall. So um, that's that's what's happened. I mean, the two recipients of of the disaster that has become California and New York from a tax point of view has been Austin and uh, and Miami. Yeah, I've noticed a lot of brilliant people moving to Austin. Not haven't really heard about many people moving to Miami, but everything that you named makes so much sense. And it's exciting to see what's going to happen to the city and the state. And as we begin to wrap up talking about wonderful weather, I want to make sure we do talk a little bit about wine as well, because dry farm wines, the practices of connecting to soil, of offering wine that in my experience has this aliveness to it, that's in some way similar to kombucha. And, you know, having started drinking wine in my early 20s, I had noticed that I was breaking out, I was getting headaches, and at some point I just stopped drinking altogether until I found Dry Farm Wines because there are, in my experience, no headaches. It's such a more pleasant and alive experience. And I would love to know, 
anything that you feel called to share about what makes Dry Farm wines so different and why the conversation about biodynamic wine could be even more important than any other labels. Yeah, let me, um, since we're coming really tight on time here, let, let me just summarize as quickly as possible sort of a couple of things. So first of all, natural wine is very rare. It makes up less than one-tenth of 1% of all the wines in the world. We're the largest buyer and seller of natural wines in the world. They're very difficult to get to for most people. But natural wine is alive, as you mentioned. The reason being is it hasn't been sterilized with sulfur dioxide, which is a preservative. And so heavy doses of, steri- heavy doses of sulfur dioxide sterilize wine, killing all the living bacteria in it to make it shelf-stable, uh, easier to transport. It sits on shelves for very long periods of time. It will age over long periods of time. Natural wine doesn't have that characteristic because it's not been sterilized. Therefore, it tastes alive because it is alive. And it also has gut-friendly bacteria that's still alive in it as well. So, you know, I created Dry Farm Wines because I was looking for a better, healthier way to drink. Been a lifelong wine aficionado and, and just got where I couldn't drink commercial wines anymore, but I didn't know why. And here's what's happening in the wine business. And they don't want you to know. So there are 76 additives approved by the FDA for the use in winemaking. Some of those additives are natural and quite harmless, and some of them are quite toxic. The problem is the wine industry, using millions of dollars of lobby money, have resisted and successfully kept contents labeling off of wine bottles. The problem with that is that you don't know what's in your wine. So you don't know if these toxic additives are in there or not. Without getting into too many specifics, with the time that we have left, this is the central part of the problem. Now, how this happened and why this is happening and why wines have become increasingly more toxic is because the wine industry, fueled by Wall Street money and greed, has consolidated, just like the food industry. So what that means is that today, 52% of U.S. wines are made by just three giant companies. And the top 30 U.S. wine companies make over 70% of U.S. wines. Everything I'm describing and telling you here is easily verifiable on a Google search. It's not my opinion. These are just facts. There are 76 FDA-approved additives. You can do a Google search for it. You can do a Google search of wine manufacturers by volume. You can do a search for total volume produced in the U.S., right? These are just facts. So in that consolidation these three giant marketing conglomerates who hide behind thousands of brands and labels, right? So when you go in the grocery store and you see all of these bottles, hundreds or thousands of bottles and labels, those, most of those wines are made by just a handful of companies. And they're made in giant wine factories in Central California. And they're used, they are made using chemicals and additives. And so these giant companies, well, or like most companies, they're not trying to make wine healthier or better. They're trying to make it faster and cheaper. And you make wine faster and cheaper by using additives and chemicals in farming. And so we sell wines that are additive-free, that are organically or biodynamically farmed. And biodynamic farming is a prescriptive advanced form of organic farming. 
So all of our wines are biodynamic or organically farmed. They are additive-free, and they're fermented with wild native yeast. Conventional commercial wines are fermented with GMO lab-cultured yeast. And so these natural wines, in our particular case, there is no certification for natural wines anywhere in the world at the moment. Although Dry Farm Wines has a certification process that we stand behind and certify. And not only are they natural, but we take it a few steps further because we're health enthusiasts. So our wines are also sugar-free. They're also lower in alcohol, and they are dry farm, meaning no irrigation is used in the farming of any of our wines. And that's important for a whole bunch of different reasons that we don't have time to cover at the moment. But irrigation is bad for the planet. Most of the planet's in a drought. It's also bad for the vine. It makes for lazy fruit that's also less healthy in the end. So anyway, that's kind of the story on kind of how conventional wines got here. It's through money and greed, fueled with Wall Street funding. And uh, you know, we sell very small family farms, produce natural wines with no chemicals in the winemaking process or in the farming practices. And you can't make wine. The reason these chemicals are used and the reason this GMO yeast is used is because you can't make wine in very large quantities without it. It's just when you start making wine in large quantities, things go wrong. And you use chemicals to correct those wrong things, right? Because wine is a living thing. It has bacteria in it. And some of those bacteria are friendly and some of those bacteria are bad in terms of the quality of the wine. So the most toxic additive is called dimethyl dicarbonate. And dimethyl dicarbonate is used to correct the single most common bacterial fault found in wines, which is called Brettanomyces. So that's how dimethyl dicarbonate gets in your wine. But the problem is you don't know if it's in there or not, right? So, you know, natural wines are just a healthier, they taste better, you feel better, and the outcome is better. And because they're sugar-free and lower in alcohol, you also have a more positive relationship with alcohol. Look, alcohol is a dangerous neurotoxin, and some people shouldn't drink at all. And it surprises people to hear me say that because they think I'm here to sell wine. But I'm not. I'm here to educate people. If you're going to drink, and if drinking works for you, then I want to help you think through how you should drink more consciously, right? And drink a natural product produced by a family farm with love and spirit, and you're going to feel better and it tastes better. So that's how I think about that. 100%. Todd, this was such a brilliant short summary for why it works. And for anyone interested in trying dry farm wines, you can get a penny bottle if you go to dryfarmwines.com slash Xenia. I'll have all the links in the show notes. Todd, thank you so much for doing what you do and for sharing so generously about your thinking and the practices in the company and for creating a wine that is truly game-changing. Have a blessed rest of your day and we'll chat soon. This podcast was made on Zencaster. If you're moved by what was shared in this episode and not sure how to take action, start by writing it down. When we notice abundance and clarity in all shapes and forms and honor it, it grows. And if you're called to share the podcast with someone who you know is ready to receive it, follow that. Find all episodes, show notes, and current offerings on XeniaBrief.com. 
Subscribe to Xenia Brief Podcast on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and a review, and take one deep breath into the knowing that's already within you.